Today on Ag News Daily. I like how we're going on this path now and maybe in the future we'll do things a little different, but I think just kind of focusing on the stories that we have of, of our customers now and then we can go from there. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a Friday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined today by Tanner Winterhoff. Tanner, do you have any big plans this weekend? Well, we just, uh, in-laws are going to start the chopper up today to go snap some earlage. So probably going to be sitting behind the steering wheel of something this weekend. Well, it's good to know that things are getting started. I'm ready for harvest season. Yep. Quite a few silage choppers have been running for a couple of weeks around here. and then. Uh, We've got to black layer, so it's time to fire up the silage chopper to get some earlage done for the feed yard. I have seen a couple of Twitter videos and some Snapchats of folks running down in the Kentucky area, a little bit in southern Nebraska. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, right around the corner. It certainly is, Tanner. And you know, this is not around the corner. This happened yesterday, but Queen Elizabeth passed away, Tanner. I did. I saw that. And uh, it, did you see the memes going around comparing the succession plan planning of the royal family to succession planning in agriculture? No, I hadn't, but I'm amused by this. Please tell us more. Well, it said King Charles is 73 years old and is just now taking over the throne, just like uh, the son of a farmer who passes away, getting the first chance to make a decision mm-hmm. on the farm since... Uh, a lot of farm families farm for so long that the next generation is ready to retire when it's their turn to make a decision. Yes, she was the longest serving monarch with 70 years on the throne, Tanner. So you are certainly probably correct there in that analogy. Um, but she also, this is kind of interesting, she did have a dairy farm. So she was also somewhat involved in agriculture as well. I did not realize that. I wonder how many of our listeners, Delaney, work or own dairies themselves. Yes, well, her dairy farm consisted of 200 registered Jersey cows, a Sussex Sussex beef cow, 140 breeding sow, and 1,500 hens across 1,000 acres of arable land and 2,000 acres of grassland. So it's quite the operation, Tanner. No kidding. I didn't know any of that. Well, Delaney, I'm going to throw you off here for a little bit and take over this podcast episode because I have my first four articles all related to weather. And I'm just going to hit one to the other. So give you a little bit of a break here on this Friday episode edition. And hopefully the listeners don't get too tired of my voice as I hit some of these highlights. So first of all, uh, we're all well aware of how South America can affect our commodity trading and Central Brazil is looking for some much needed rain. So their dry season, five months of complete dryness this year in Central Brazil, producers can get away with double cropping, but this is about the time where we're looking to start planting the corn crop. So obviously down by the equator, winter and summer are just terms that are very lightly used as the temperatures are usually consistently in the 80s and 90s, but this has been a longer dry season than usual. However, A little bit here on the horizon is some forecasted rain. Typically for this corn crop, producers in Brazil will wait until the first one or two inches of rain to bring some energy to the topsoil before planting and risking that corn crop. So as of right now, planting has been very slow and delayed. 
2021-2022 started on time but got dry early, which is why we were looking at a five-month dry season coming up into this forecast. But of course, we've got some wet season forecasts ahead. Obviously, looks like there's some good weather patterns headed their way that might stall out over Brazil. So we will keep a little bit of an eye on what rain looks like there in central South America. Also talking La Nina here in the U.S., the forecast for the winter here in our neck of the woods should be similar to last year. Delaney, you've talked about this being the third year of La Nina. We are at a 91% chance that that pattern will continue and control through November and nearly a 60% chance through March. So if you remember what last year's winter looked like, more than likely it will be the same. Of course, right there where the hotter than usual and cooler than usual areas combine could see some chances for extreme weather and some unseasonable tornadoes. Speaking of storms that kick up quite a bit of wind, Hurricane K is adding to the most unusual and extreme weather week for California. I don't know if anybody's been paying attention to this, but there's been some extreme heat that we've reported on in California. And now we've got several new wildfires and coming in the next 36 hours is Hurricane K. So it is expected to make landfall in Mexico's Baja, California, before being downgraded to a tropical storm. But it will spend days spinning off the coast of California, bringing more than a year's worth of rain to certain areas there. But the delaying my last piece and the area where people could use some rain is the Texas Panhandle, where nearly 70% of the nation's crop production is grown, especially in the high plains. The West Texas is the biggest cotton patch in the world, and it has experienced far high amounts of heat and dry. Their rainfall amounts have been the lowest they have seen in generations. So a majority of Texas is experiencing some level of drought. There are some areas there where it is costing America's cotton crap, cotton crop. Nearly a third of the U.S. cotton crop is grown in this territory, and farmers are concerned that they will see a potential $2 billion reduction in profits, which is being labeled as pretty catastrophic from the CEO of the Plains Cotton Grower Association, Cody Benset. So there you go, Delaney. A lot of weather news to kick off this Friday episode. Yeah, that was a lot of weather news, and you're doing, uh, I feel like you're doing all of our jobs because you're just leading the team this morning. So no complaints <laughs> from me, Tanner, but we've got a quick update here on the rail strike that continues to loom closer to a full-on shutdown. The clock is ticking here, and quite a few ag groups are beginning to fear that a rail strike will go into effect and are calling on Congress to ensure that doesn't happen. The National Grain and Feed Association and 30 other agricultural groups collectively known as the Agricultural Transportation Working Group sent a letter to leaders in both the House and Senate transportation committees earlier this week, calling on them to intervene if necessary to prevent any disruption of rail service if the talks fail. As of now, only five of the 13 union groups have reached a tentative agreement But they're saying if an agreement is not reached, Congress should act to avoid significant economic damage to U.S. supply chains and further uncertainty for rail customers. Because 
This could have very dire effects and would be a complete stoppage of the rail system, Tanner, that could lead to shutdowns or slowdowns of rail-dependent facilities, including, of course, this time of year, a lot of grain being shipped via railway. Yeah, I had seen that article. I'm glad that you picked up on that one as well. I'm, I'm also glad that these organizations see the dire need of the rail system and are trying to get an early jump on things when they're dealing with the government that doesn't necessarily move fast. Yes, certainly that's a good point that they're trying to work ahead here, although it's still a little fuzzy to me exactly. Um, you know, I think Congress can effectively fire the strike workers. I'm a little fuzzy on exactly what Congress can do to intervene. They can prevent the strike, but I don't quite fully understand how if workers aren't willing to show up. And as we know, there's not particularly a lot of workers in the workforce right now, so I'm not sure where they would find those fill-ins if that were to happen. Right, yeah. Do they become, does it become illegal not to go to work because of some ruling? So that might be something, if we have a listener out there that better understands, reach out to us. Reach out on our social media platforms, find Ag Juice Daily, and we can get you on to have a conversation around that. Well, Delaney, I check the ethanol production reports every single week. Obviously, with Labor Day, this Friday report is coming out instead of Thursday. Ethanol production rose to the highest level in almost a month last week. So we had just talked about it being at one of the record lows for the last two months. And inventories declined. So it's good to see demand of ethanol up, even though yesterday I reported that demand on oil was down. So outpour, output from the biofuel increased to an average of 989,000 barrels a day for the week that ended. That's compared to the 970, 970,000 a week earlier. Uh, the Midwest, again, is by far the largest producing region. The East Coast did see an output decline from 12,000 to uh, down to 12,000 barrels from 13,000 the week before that. However, stockpiles dropped, like I stated, 23.138 million barrels for the week ending September 2nd, down from 23.53, so nearly half a million barrels had disappeared in the stock. So good to see production is back up for ethanol for those of you who produce corn. And we will have to continue to produce as our stocks are declining. Well, Tanner, some related energy news here. The U.S. is trying to put a cap at $44 per barrel on Russian oil prices under the agreement reached by G7 countries last week. Have we reported on this up until this point? We didn't get into the details, just stated that that group had been considering a cap and that Putin had uh, stated he would not sell to any maliciously Mm -hmm. organized or unaligned countries. We just hit the tip of it. If you have more details, that would be great. Well, I certainly do. And we're not getting full disclosure yet about what that agreement reached looks like, but for sure a cap of $44 per barrel. Like you said, Russia's very upset by that, but the G7 price cap isn't entering into effect until December 5th for crude oil. And on February 5th for um, pending the finalization of the price cap based on a range of what they're saying are technical inputs. So of course, like you said, Russia is trying to fight back 
and said it would not sell to oil countries with the price cap in place. And we know they also have filed some complaints within the WTO organization, as well as really somewhat related to energy, but also to grain in general. They're claiming that Ukraine is cheating on the UN brokered export agreement, and they're now vowing to look at revising the terms of the Ukrainian deal to export grain, nat gas, oil, and other products via the Black Sea. Putin said he wants to limit the countries that can receive shipments, saying that Ukrainian grain shipments are not going to go to the poorest countries in the world as originally intended, even though those are the ones that are in the most dire need of the grains trying to be exported through the Black Sea region. So it's certainly an interesting game kind of of cat and mouse here, Tanner. Yeah, and I feel like that's what a lot of uh, those agreements with Russia have been is who who can either outlast the longest or who can get the most out of a trade deal. Again, something for us to continue to watch. The last piece of news that I have for this Friday edition is that many tourists are traveling to Indiana to watch snakes cross the road. There have now been, or I'm sorry, Illinois. The Forest Service is closing three miles of a road in southern Illinois this September through October due to heavy traffic of snakes. The closure is meant to protect the undertaking of a biannual migration in the Shawnee National Forest, 90 miles southeast of St. Louis. Each spring and fall, these snakes will traverse the forest floor to reach their hibernating and nesting grounds, which is limestone cliffs. So every year they come into and out of the LaRue Swamp, but many tourists are traveling to that area causing traffic issues. A lot of -of out-of-state license plates have visited to watch these snakes go across a 2.7 to 3-mile stretch of Great River Road. They want to caution our listeners, if you are snake-going adventurers, that there are three venomous types of these species crossing the road. Be very careful as you approach them. Stay on the road and out of the grass. The number one snake with the most venom impact is the cottonmouth said the U.S. Forest Services. But looks like, Delaney, for those not familiar, the Shawnee National Forest spans nearly 290,000 acres between the Ohio and Mississippi River on the easternmost edge of the Ozark Mountain ecosystems. And the uh, forest system says nearly 57% of Illinois' amphibians and 56% of their reptiles live in that national forest. But who'd have thought that people would be driving to Illinois to watch snakes cross a road. It kind of reminds me of the Iowa State Fair exhibit, Snakes Alive. Yes, it does a little bit. I uh, only have sympathy for farmers in that area who now probably have to take a complete detour this fall during harvest to watch out for snakes. Certainly an, an odd piece of news for this Friday edition, Tanner, but I tell you what, I think I'm all out of news for today, aside from talking whiskey on the podcast today. Yes, that will be a really fun conversation. How did markets shape up for the week? Are we going to open up or open down going into Monday's WASDE WASDE report? Well, Tanner, 
That's true. I'm glad you mentioned the WASD report coming up on Monday because I think that's been a little overshadowed by all the other news going on right now related to weather and Russia-Ukraine. But markets are certainly looking strong this morning as we head into the opening session. New crop corn is up about four and a half cents at 673. New crop soybeans up about 16 cents on the morning at 1402. New crop wheat up 12 cents at 841. And in the livestock markets this morning, we're seeing some mixed trade. October live cattle is up about 12 and a half cents at a buck 43.37, while December feeder or December live cattle, excuse me, are down about 42 and a half cents on the morning at 149.65. October feeders are up about 45 cents heading into opening here at 184.40 and October lean hogs are up a dollar 05 at 92.12 and a half Tanner. Hey, there we go. Now it's time to talk whiskey. Well, folks, it's time to crack one today and by cracking one, I don't mean crack a beer. I mean crack a glass of whiskey. We're talking today to Joe Kenobi, who is the founder of Flyover Whiskey. You might follow along with him on social media, which is how we originally got connected, Joe. But we're certainly super excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me, and good morning, everyone. So, Joe, before we get to Flyover Whiskey, tell us a little bit about your farming operation background. So I've been back about five years now. And it, my, when I came back, cousin also came back. And so it was my dad and his two brothers and everything kind of had a nice split when that happened. And so we're a farm and feedlot um, and everything kind of got split in thirds. So it's kind of been, um, it was a weird couple of years for a while while everybody kind of figured out their new, new roles and just kind of that whole succession um, of how that went. And so we still do a lot of the farming. We still share a lot of help. Um, but I think there's just kind of a, kind of always wanting to look for a little something more. And I guess that's where the whiskey thing came in later, but it was always just, uh, I always liked the farming and the feeding cattle. And so that's kind of where we've been, uh, the last five years. So Joe, it sounds like it's a, and I don't mean to say standard in a negative term, but it sounds like a standard farm. Where did the whiskey come in? Had you, when you said you came back, had you been working in distilleries or, or had any experience that way? No, I, uh, the, just recently I had a buddy of mine who had been working in a lot of breweries and like kind of in that scene, he had brewed beer in college. Um, he had worked for a brewery in Lincoln while we were down there. And then he had moved out to Oregon. And when he came back, uh, that was kind of my, it kind of tipped me off that, Hey, maybe we can, we can do this because I had been making whiskey kind of on the sly since I got back from college. And that was just something that I wanted to be able to see if we could take it somewhere. And so that was a good, that was a good opportunity, a good time that we just said, hey, maybe we can, maybe we can do this. So, Joe, tell us a little bit more about Flyover Whiskey, because you're doing something unique, especially when it comes to the marketing and the bottle aspect of these whiskey bottles. Right. So we basically take 
uh, 15 to 20 pounds from a farmer and they said, we want a specific field or a specific farm from a specific harvest. Um, and so we'll take that and we'll make six bottles of whiskey for them. And it has all their farm and field information on it. And it can have a farm logo or a picture. Uh, we've kind of done, kind of done about everything, every different kind of corn, popcorn, white corn, red corn, um, kind of everything under the sun. And it's, it's always cool to talk to people and kind of go through it with them. What is so special about each, each batch because it, it's, it can be someone's first farm, um, their first year on their first farm that they want their first harvest to be something that they can have and keep or have and share. And it's just, it's just really cool to be able to go through these stories with people. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's the last harvest or it's grandpa's last harvest. And those are just really nice to be able to commemorate, share a bottle over Christmas, put it up on the mantle, um, just as a keepsake. And there's some people that want to do that every year on a certain farm, just, just so they have something to remember it by, whether it was a good year or a bad year. Uh, some guys want to put the yield on there. Some just rather just have, have the hybrid or have just where it came from. But, um, every, every six bottles is unique. Every six bottles is made on its own, its own still, um, with just your corn. So it's, it's really unique and it's good to be able to, to give that to people that they can kind of say that's mine. And that, that came from my farm because we really didn't have something like that before. And since I've, we've been feeding cattle and I've been able to, you know, produce our own beef and share that beef, uh, with other people farming or not farming. Um, it's just, we really didn't have something like that just for farming. So it's really, it's really cool to be able to give that to people. Yeah, no kidding. So you talked about doing every type of corn. Have you ever included any other ingredients? If some of our listeners have small grains or want to throw, throw something out there into a custom recipe or is it pretty standard? Yeah. So we can, we can kind of do, we can do any other small grains. We've had people send us barley. We've had people send us wheat. Um, we've done some of our own rye. Um, it's kind of, uh, for the label that we have, it's a corn whiskey. So it's required to have 80% corn. Um, but the other 20% we can play around with. And that's completely up to, uh, the grower that sends us, you know, the bag. We send a, a bag out to them to send back, uh, just to keep everything kind of consistent. And so they can put 80% corn in and mix in wheat or rye or, or whatever they, they want to try out. So Joe, they send you, or I was looking at the website and you can decide to partner with a farmer or obviously have your own yield or your own uh, crop sent to you guys to create into whiskey. But then from there, you said you get six bottles, but that's if you're, I assume, supporting or supplying your own grain what if you want to partner with a farmer is it available to buy the whiskey that you're making or is it right now just a custom whiskey for the farmer that supplies the grain no we we have we have a few 
farmers that we partner with around here and then there's also some that we kind of try to split it split it up uh, but if you have a farmer or know somebody that you can get corn from we can do it that way or we have the farmers that we partner with that you can buy you can buy someone else's whiskey that we've made and we'll talk to them and get more corn from them and we can we can sell that also you know, this seems like such a great like Christmas gift or a birthday present for that special farmer in your life. Well, I was just going to give you that hint, Delaney, saying <laughs> this is what I wanted for Christmas. <laughs> well, whose green are we going to use, Tanner? Oh, well, we got plenty of listeners. I'm sure that's not <laughs> going to be an issue. Joe, what are you most excited about in the future for Flyover? Do you have any big plans? Uh, it's, we're uh, We're working on just getting caught up for right now which is, it's been, uh, it's been awesome. Um, we're farmers too. And so it's, it's crazy about right now. Everyone wants to put an order in for Christmas and we're just, we're booked up. So we're working on getting the wait list down to kind of a nice three, four, five months. You know, whiskey, you can't, you can't make whiskey in a day. It's, uh, it takes a little longer than that. So it's, uh, that's kind of goal number one right now is just kind of get caught up and get to a, a nice spot where we're not eight to 10 months out on orders. And I've been asked a lot if we're going to put it into stores. And I really like that we haven't done that yet. You know, it's just not kind of the, the uniqueness I think would get diluted down quite a bit. Um, that this, you can't just go out and buy this. You know, it is from one specific farm. Every label, you know, the every six bottle label is different for the most part. And it's just, I like that we can, we can say that this is truly, I know this is on a lot of bottles. It is truly small, small batch, small craft, uh, just micro distilling. And so, I like how we're going on this path now and maybe in the future we'll do things a little different, but I think just kind of focusing on the stories that we have of, of our customers now, and then we can go from there. Yeah, this is certainly a really interesting, neat idea. I love it. I do actually love the idea of doing this for presents for family members, friends, clients, and other farmers, maybe even Tanner, but Joe, for those of our listeners that are listening as well, thinking this would be a cool present for someone that farms or maybe themselves, where should they go to find out more information? So the easiest way to find information and put an order in, uh, essentially just on our website, flyoverwhiskey.com. Um, it's easy. There's only a couple choices. You, you either have your own corn or you don't have your own corn, and then you go through the, the ordering process on there. Um, if you put an order in, we'll send you a USPS prepaid uh, envelope to send your corn back to us. Um, and then we go through the process of filling out a label. And then uh, you just sit on the wait list and we will make your whiskey and send it back to you. Pretty simple. Well, that's, yeah, super neat idea. Loved getting to know Flyover Whiskey and getting to know a little bit more of the background story behind it, Joe. So certainly appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, Delaney. 
for any of our listeners out there, that would make a great host appreciation gift. Do they do those? Is host, is host appreciation uh, gift a thing? We should make it a national day because it seems like there's a national day for everything else. There you go. Radio and podcast host appreciation. But no, what a cool company. I uh, can see why he's got such a backlog of orders. Time for him probably to expand his business. Yes, it certainly sounds that way. But folks, that's definitely not only a good host gift, but also probably a good Christmas gift this year. Although he sounds like he's a little bit behind on uh, or backed up for orders this year. So might have to look at Mother Mother's Day or Father's Day at this point, Tanner. <laughs> there you go. Whenever it shows up, Valentine's Day, 4th of July. Sure. Is a great gift. Listeners, yeah. that was a pretty cool Friday interview edition. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Remember to find us. Ag News Daily on any of the social media platforms. But for today, what do you say? Should we let the people go? Let's let them go.